This week, a lecture about Civil War life on the home front and battles fought in Virginia in the critical year of 1864. Every time the Army of the Potomac advances in Virginia, they fight a battle and they go back and they retreat. This time, they fought a battle against the Army of Northern Virginia and they're advancing. It was a hard battle. Casualties were high. Uh, it was a very, very unpleasant experience, but we won this battle. We're advancing. Coming up, more with Texas Christian University professor Stephen Woodworth. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Well, today we're going to begin talking about the year 1864, and we're going to start with the action in Virginia in 1864, uh, focusing uh, especially now today on uh, the action in May in June, and uh, the famous duel between Ulysses S. Grant and Robert E. Lee, the big showdown between, in each case, the best general that each side had. I think this campaign has been more misunderstood and misinterpreted than maybe any other campaign in the Civil War. And I think the reason is because of expectations. Um, you know, today in politics, you would see Uh, Say there's a presidential campaign, the primary campaign is going on, and uh, several candidates are seeking the nomination of one of the parties. And they're coming up on one of the uh, nominating, uh, the the primaries, the state primary, and you'll typically, you'll hear some politicians say, oh, if I finish in the top three, that will be a win. If I finish in the top three, I'll be very happy, or something like that. And, of course, he's trying to manage expectations, because... If he does that successfully, and if people and the press and so forth buy it, yeah, top three finishes a win for him. And he finishes number two, you know, oh, wow, that's great. You know, he exceeded expectations. But on the other hand, if he doesn't bother to manage expectations, or if he's not successful at it and doesn't get people to buy it, uh, then, you know, he finishes second. And people, oh, wow, what a loser. What a defeat for him. He finished second. The thing with this campaign right here, what's called the Overland campaign, Grant's campaign, up to the point that he gets to Petersburg, is uh, that, um, come on in there, yeah. Uh, The thing with this is that um, the guy who finishes first winds up being looked at as a loser because of expectations. Now, Grant... We've already met Grant before, and we've seen some of the reasons why expectations are high for him. So uh, we saw his brilliant success at the Battle of Fort Donaldson, which uh, catapulted him to national recognition, fame, and promotion to major general. And then we saw him stand off a very determined Confederate counterattack at uh, Shiloh. In 1863, he conducted a brilliant campaign of maneuver in the interior of Mississippi, which enabled him, that was in May of 63, which enabled him to besiege Vicksburg, which then six weeks later surrendered to him not only the town of Vicksburg, Confederate bastion in the Mississippi, but the Confederacy's main army in Mississippi, which was trapped in Vicksburg as a result of Grant's campaign, and the the victory at Vicksburg ultimately winds up within a few days giving the Union complete control of the Mississippi River. It's a huge success. Not a turning point, but certainly another nail in the Confederacy's coffin. And then in the fall of 1863, uh, Grant is brought in to remedy a situation that has arisen from a disaster that happened to William S. Rosecrans. Uh, Rosecrans was defeated at the September 1920, uh, 19-20, uh, 1863 Battle of Chickamauga, Rosecrans then allowed himself to be sort of quasi-besieged inside Chattanooga. They bring in Grant, and Grant straightens things out, defeats Confederates at the, in the November Battle of Chattanooga, wins a big victory. And at this point, 
Grant's reputation has become huge uh, nationwide. And there's virtually a, a, really a consensus among the northern people, not unanimity, but a heavy majority of the northern people are very eager to see Grant uh, promoted, given command of all the Union armies, and uh, there's really a feeling that as commander of all the Union armies, Grant ought to at least accompany the Army of the Potomac, if not actually outright command it, in Virginia and take on Lee and finally beat Lee and accomplish what the Union's been trying to do futilely, that, that Union futility in Virginia now for three years, uh, that, that Grant should do that. That should happen. Northern politicians are for it. Uh, actually, it's a bipartisan thing. It's not just Republicans who want to see that happen. It helps that Grant's political background is unclear. Grant, by this time, really is a Republican, but his uh, antecedents are more Democrat, and he's never been very po- political anyway. So both parties are eager to uh, see him made general. And in fact, uh, the Democrats kind of would like to recruit him to run for president in 64, which he's hearing nothing of that, won't have that at all. But uh, he gets that promotion. Lincoln is, is eager to promote him. He gets the promotion to lieutenant general, the only lieutenant general, three-star general in the Union Army at that time, the only person to hold the rank of full three-star lieutenant general since George Washington, kind of a select company there. Uh, Winfield Scott, who we saw before, was a brevet lieutenant general, three stars, so honorary lieutenant general. Grant is a regular full lieutenant general, outranks every officer in the Union Army, and officially is given the position of commanding general of all the Union armies. And, yeah, it's like, here you go, Grant, here are the keys, take it away, win the war for us. And I don't think there was anything Grant could have done to have managed expectations after all that. Uh, The expectations were that Grant was going to come to Virginia, he was going to win quickly, cheaply, and easily. That within a matter of weeks, Grant would, of course, uh, win the war, and certainly by the end of the summer, uh, yeah, Grant will will have won the war. Lee will be defeated and everything will be fine. And of course, That is radically unrealistic. The generals that Grant had defeated in Mississippi and at Chattanooga were good generals, Confederate generals, uh, John Pemberton in Mississippi, Braxton Bragg in Chattanooga. They were good generals, but they were decidedly second tier. Albert Sidney Johnston was viewed as a first tier general. We really don't know how good or bad he was. Grant beat him too quickly, and then he died at Shiloh. But... um, Lee is obviously the best the Confederacy has. Lee's um, stature and reputation are towering, dominating. Uh, the, um, his soldiers have very high morale. They really don't believe he can be defeated. They don't believe they can be defeated. This is going to be stand them in good stead. And they, they are quite good. And Lee has put together quite a bit of a winning team. One advantage that Lee has had and putting together a winning team with the Army of Northern Virginia, is that Lee knows how to handle Jefferson Davis. And when Lee wants an officer transferred out of my army, this guy's not getting the job done, Davis will let him do it. Now, Lee, Lee has to do it right. Lee has to uh, use some tact and some finesse. But he knows how to do that, and he can get it done. And so Lee has the team that he wants there in Virginia. Well, he doesn't have Stonewall Jackson because he's dead. Uh, he would have liked to have had him. But um, otherwise, Lee gets, to, gets the officers he wants there in Virginia, and he's got a good team. He's very good. His men are good. His army's good. So it is totally unrealistic to expect Grant to win within a matter of weeks or to win very cheaply and easy. And another, another unrealistic aspect of expectations about what we're going to be seeing here was that, that somehow... No, not that picture. Let's look at this one. Somehow, uh, with uh, an officer like Grant, people expect that he's going to call his shots. And he's going to be like Babe Ruth, the famous time that he points to the center field stands and then hits the ball there. I think Ruth probably got lucky. But uh, you really have to get lucky to be able to do that. To say, well, here's a plan. I'm going to do this and this. And actually, 
to some degree, Grant actually did that, as we'll see. But, uh, you know, Grant really is an opportunistic general. He will look for you to make mistakes if you're his opposing general. He will look for you to make mistakes. He will take advantage of them. And uh, so he can't necessarily tell you everything that's going to happen in the campaign before it does. So anyway, um, Grant does, what we're going to see is Grant does pretty well, but uh, because he doesn't meet the expectations, the unreasonable expectations that people had going into the campaign, uh, both then, that summer of 64, and since then, there's been a tendency to look at this campaign as a failure for Grant, as a success for Lee. I'm going to argue that it was not that at all. All right, so Grant... Um, all right, I'm going to go over there. Grant makes various plans for this campaign. Now, I'm going to briefly just tell you really quick, in addition to a campaign through Virginia, and you can see this old map of the interior of Virginia, and I've labeled this Railroads to Richmond. You've, we've, we've discussed this topic already. We're going to review it again in a minute. Before I discuss that, Grant does have a couple of peripheral campaigns planned in Virginia. It's not just that Grant's going to take the Army of the Potomac, and he's not going to be the Army of the Potomac commander. He's going to, I'll, I'll get to that in a minute. But he is going to be supervising the Army of the Potomac directly. But from a distance, he's going to be supervising a couple of other small armies in peripheral campaigns that he hopes will um, pay off for him. One of those is going to be in the Shenandoah Valley. Now, we've seen the Shenandoah Valley before. We saw Jackson was out there and made a real headache for the Union in the spring of 62. Well, Grant's going to send an army into the Shenandoah Valley, small army, which he hopes will keep the Confederates from using the Shenandoah Valley to distract from his main campaign, and hopefully will distract some Confederate troops out there himself. He's also going to send another small army on a campaign somewhat similar to what we saw McClellan do back in 62, that is, approach Richmond from the rivers, kind of off the map here, but the rivers, well, yeah, right here. The James River, right there. Uh, now, McClellan, you know, went up the York River and then followed the Richmond and York River Railroad for various reasons. Uh, this little peripheral campaign that Grant's planning, this smaller army, is going to go along the James River and uh, will be able to strike either for Richmond or for the smaller town of Petersburg. So what about Petersburg? Well, in order for the Confederates to feed Lee's army and the people of Richmond, they need supplies. Those supplies come on four railroads. The Confederates would have to keep at least two of those railroads, at least two, in order to keep Richmond fed, to keep Lee's army fed, and to maintain their position in Virginia. Okay? So they've got to keep two out of the four. Three out of the four come together at Petersburg. So if the Union, that Union force, that subsidiary army, a small army, I'm going to tell you about a little more in a minute, were to go to Petersburg and take Petersburg, um, now, and the commander has an option, go for Richmond, go for Petersburg. If the Confederates cover Richmond, leave Petersburg uncovered, and that smaller Union army takes Petersburg, the Confederates are done in Richmond. They will not be able to hold Richmond. They will not be able to maintain Lee's army north of Richmond, and they're going to lose northern Virginia and most of the state, really. So this is, very, this is a very sensitive target that Grant is poking at with a smaller army. It could be, and Grant's entirely open to the possibility, that while he is up here in northern Virginia directly supervising the Army of the Potomac, these guys will win the war. Well, it might happen. And, uh, so, and he hopes... That by stretching Lee in all those directions, he will uh, be able to gain an advantage over him. Well, that leads to another problem, though. Another thing that Grant's going to have to deal with this year. So he's got good things going for him, and there's some things against him. Going against Grant is the problem that this is 1864. This is an election year, and there's going to be a presidential election. Lincoln is up for re-election. Now, there were actually some Republicans who said and suggested to Lincoln, 
we ought to postpone the election. Let's not hold this election in the midst of a civil war. It's a huge civil war going on. The major faction of the Democratic Party at this time believes that uh, that war is a failure. They've been saying for years, the war is a failure. We ought to negotiate. And kind of the subtext of that is, and accept Confederate independence. So if the, if the Democrats were to win this election, there's a chance, historians still argue about how much of a chance, there's a chance the Confederacy could become independent. And there's almost a certainty that emancipation would be revoked, that, that slavery would survive. So people had said to Lincoln, you ought to cancel this election. And Lincoln said, no, we're fighting to preserve self-government. We're fighting against the idea that if you lose the election, you get to start a war and see if you can win it with a war when you couldn't win it in an election. And we're fighting against that kind of idea. And if we were to postpone the election because of the war, we've already lost the cause we were fighting for. Yeah, we, we postponed the election, so we stay in power. But we were fighting to maintain the idea of self-government. So we can't do that. We're gonna hold the election exactly as scheduled we're going to do exactly what the Constitution says. Right. But politics is tricky. And how's that going to affect Grant's campaign? Well, for one thing, it means there's going to be a lot of scrutiny. It's going to be important. But another thing, and I've already told you about the idea of political generals, that these are generals who are actually politicians because we can't trust the experts. I'm, I'm not saying that, but I mean the people. Kind of, there, there's a... a Belief among the people, I know this sounds incredible today, but we can't trust experts. They've been educated in this. They've studied this, so they're naturally bad at it. We need to, we need to trust guys who don't know anything about it. Uh, and so, that, yeah, that idea was around back there, too, specifically with regard to the military. And so they've got political generals. And so why, do you, why are these guys generals? Because it will gain political support. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. And Grant has been very respectful of Lincoln's need to have some political generals now and then. Guys like McClernand, and Grant tolerated him for quite a while. Um, Grant knows that in this year of 1864, Lincoln's going to need to have some, some of these political generals. Guys, these guys have been in the Army for a while, and they haven't necessarily done well. Uh, but they're going to need to have important roles because they garner important political support for Lincoln. And unfortunately, but probably unavoidably, both of these two subsidiary campaigns wind up being under political generals. The campaign out in the Shenandoah Valley, actually there's the Shenandoah River, but it's right out there. The campaign out in the Shenandoah Valley is entrusted to a German-born general named Franz Siegel. Now I think 20th century history, well actually 18th, 19th century history too, has showed us that German-born generals can be very good indeed. But Franz Siegel was not. He was not very good, but he has this command. You just hope that maybe this time he'll perform better and he'll do something good, hopefully. And then the command uh, of this smaller expedition along the James River, this goes to a, a real American-born guy named uh, Benjamin Butler, He's a Massachusetts politician, a Democrat, and uh, he's important. So Lincoln needs these guys. He needs Siegel because having Siegel in uniform helps Lincoln win the German-American vote. There was a lot of German-American vote at that time. Having Ben Butler in important command helps secure Lincoln the support of New England Democrats or former Democrats who might vote for Lincoln. So... Ben Butler's important, too. And this leads to where I can dismiss these subsidiary campaigns and say they're, they're not going to do anything much because uh, both guys uh, performed at the level we've come to expect from political generals. 
and thus both subsidiary campaigns were complete failures. Butler didn't take Richmond, didn't take Petersburg, got his command uh, bottled up in the end of a peninsula between the James and Appomattox rivers, and that was that. The Confederates were able to contain him with minimal force and detach the rest of their troops to Lee. Ziegel also failed in the Shenandoah Valley. And so uh, these two subsidiary campaigns that had the potential to help Grant a lot, well, they're out. So now it's going to be all on Grant and the Army of the Potomac, which he is not commanding, but he is supervising. More on that in a moment. Well, yeah, it's, yeah, it's time for that. Not right now. Let's talk about the command, because this is a problem that Grant has. What would really work best, we can say this with the, uh, the benefit of hindsight, is that would work best if, is if there were two of Ulysses Grant, and one of them commanded the Army of the Potomac, and the other one commanded all the armies of the Union. But unfortunately, there aren't two. And of course, the Confederacy would like to clone Robert E. Lee, too. So they can't do that. You can't clone Grant. You could potentially, and maybe this would have been better. It's hard to say. You could just give Grant, say, all right, Grant, you're going to wear two hats. You're commander of the Army of the Potomac. You were also commander of all the Union armies. McClellan actually had that job briefly in the spring of 62. It didn't work out well. And it probably, you can't expect that to work. That's too big a job for one man. Something's going to get neglected. So Grant is traveling. What Grant does, he makes his headquarters with the Army of the Potomac headquarters. Actually, Grant and the headquarters of Grant and the headquarters of the Army of the Potomac's commander, General George Gordon Meade, are kind of co-located. They're literally adjacent to each other most of the time during the campaign we're going to talk about. And, um, but Grant, Grant tells Meade, you know, I want you to be as independent as you would be if you were commanding the Army of the Potomac and I was in Washington. But that can't be. That's not realistic. That's not going to happen. So in that, Grant really is trying to do something you can't do. Because Grant is present with the Army, so Grant's responsible for what the Army does. If Grant were in Washington and Meade decided to do something dumb with the Army, uh, Grant would be responsible in the sense that he was in command of Meade, but he wouldn't have known what happened, and so Grant could say, Meade, what did you do? You know. Whereas when Grant's present with the Army, he's responsible to a greater degree. He almost has to intervene and tell Meade, no, don't send those guys over there. Send them over here. Now, don't send that core around there. Send it around here. He's got to do that. And so this sets up a constant tension through the whole campaign, really through the rest of the war, between Grant trying to supervise Meade and yet trying to give Meade some degree of independence to let him command the Army of the Potomac. Probably, again, what might, might be better would, have, would be if Meade recognized himself as almost a sort of a chief of staff of the Army of the Potomac. And I like the idea that it, what I think would have been better, it, there would have been problems with it, but for Grant to bring his friend uh, James B. McPherson out from the West, and I think McPherson and Grant would have worked well together with McPherson being sort of Army of the Potomac commander, kind of glorified um, chief of staff, and just sort of run the Army while Grant tells it what to do. As it was, Meade was constantly feeling resentful of Grant. He's always telling me what to do. And Grant, it, you know, it reminds me of a parent teaching their child to ride a bicycle. You know, it's all right, now you get on the bicycle and you, you've got your hands on them, you know, and all right, that's Meade's on the bicycle, right? And Grant's the dad. And okay, okay. And then you take your hands away and, oh, they start wobbling and you grab them again, you know. And uh, it was kind of like that. Grant keeps trying to take his hands away from Meade Meade keeps making mistakes, which Grant then has to intervene. You've got the problem that Meade's upset because Grant has intervened. Meanwhile, Meade has made several mistakes, which cost the Army a lot. And that's a problem they have throughout this campaign. Okay, anyway, uh, so Grant's going to command the Army of the Potomac. Now, we've already been several times over the idea that there are a limited number of ways you can take an army to Richmond and supply it. And so there is the Orange and Alexandria Railroad going from Alexandria, Virginia, down to Gordonsville. You catch the Virginia Central and ride that down to Richmond. 
It's the longest way. But, and uh, another problem with it is in these upper reaches of the Orange and Alexandria, it's vulnerable to Confederate guerrillas. Confederates can raid and potentially disrupt your supplies. But uh, that's at least one way you can go. Okay, another way is the Richmond and Fredericksburg Railroad from the mouth of Aquia Creek on the Potomac there, straight down to Richmond. It's short, it's direct, it's got problems too. Uh, in 18, late 1862, December 62, Ambrose Burnside tried this with the Army of the Potomac and found that although you can force your way across the Rappahannock at Fredericksburg, it's almost impossible to force your way up out of the bottomlands of the Rappahannock River onto the bluffs beyond it and uh, lost a battle that way. And in the spring of 63, Joseph Hooker with the Army of the Potomac tried going around Fredericksburg that way, and that didn't work all that well either. It, it maybe could have, but it failed. So there are real problems getting past the Rappahannock River on the Orange and Alexandria Railroad. Oh, and another problem, by the way, back here with the, uh, excuse me, the Richmond and Fredericksburg, with the Richmond and Fredericksburg. On the Orange and Alexandria, there's a problem that Robert E. Lee has his army deployed and heavily dug in, um, yeah, just south of the Rapidan around Orange Courthouse. So that's a problem. You're gonna have to do something about that if you're Grant. If you said, well, we're gonna follow the line of the Orange and Alexandria, you're really, what you're going to have to do is you're going to have to turn loose of the railroad, cut your supply line, maneuver away from your supply line for a while, which is very dangerous. Usually Grant would do that. In fact, if Grant had had the army that he had with him out in, in Mississippi, he would have done that. He knew them, knew the officers, knew how they, knew how they worked. But not being familiar with the Army of the Potomac, he didn't want to do something that risky. So that's not a, an option. Of course, you could go up the peninsula the way McClellan did, following these, uh, these large rivers here, these estuaries. Uh, and we've seen that Grant is sending a minor expedition to, a, to futility here. He, he didn't want them to go to futility, but they did. But there are problems with this, and in fact, Lincoln almost would not tolerate the main Union force in Virginia, the Army of the Potomac, going down there again. The thing with McClellan, it worked out so badly, the Confederate, it left Northern Virginia so wide open. Lincoln doesn't like that and really is just not going to let that happen. So that's, not, that's a non-starter for Grant. Now, what Grant is going to do, he's going to use a combination of all three plans. His army is on the Orange and Alexandria Railroad near Culpeper when he starts out. So, and Lee is south of him. So Grant is going to angle. So I'll get uh, oriented here. There we go. It's going to angle across the Rapidan River there, angling to the southeast like that, towards the little courthouse town of Spotsylvania. And uh, if he can get to Spotsylvania before Lee does, Lee is, is blocking his route over here. Grant's going to go that way. If, Lee, if Grant can get down there before Lee does, Grant's going to get a head start. And if he can get there before Lee does, he will actually be in the enviable situation of being closer to Richmond than Lee is, and Lee will be in a lot of trouble. At that point, Lee is almost checkmated if Grant can do that. Grant, uh, and Grant would be willing to accept a quick victory. You know, all those expectations for victory in two weeks, Lee's army destroyed in a month or whatever. Grant wouldn't mind. He'll give it a shot if he can. But um, he's also realistic enough to know probably he's going to have to play out the whole campaign what he plans to do is basically, and he's, he's got this in mind, not the details of it, of course, but in broad, in broad terms, is to keep moving to the southeast and circle around Richmond to the east. If he can get straight into Richmond, sure, take it. But, on the other hand, he thinks probably, and he tells a staff officer before the campaign starts, so they're still up here before the armies have left their camps, he tells a staff officer, actually several of his staff officers, when we get here, and he points to Petersburg, when we get here, the war will be over. And that's pretty close to being true. So anyway, the campaign begins in May of 64.
So you can see there, Grant starts out north of the Rapidan, crosses the Rapidan early in May, and Lee meets him. Lee is, and I don't think Grant really thought Lee was going to let him, you know, steal a, a, a march all the way to Spotsylvania, which is there. Yeah. Lee meets him over here, and this is an area that is favorable to Lee. Uh, it's unfortunate that Grant has to go through it, but there's no other way to get there. It's called the Wilderness of Spotsylvania. It's an area of, I don't know, 30 or 40 square miles, an area where during colonial times, in the 1700s, there were uh, large iron ore, well, no, no, small iron ore deposits found there. They were large by the standards of colonial Virginia. They were small by the standards of anything else. They found iron ore there. The iron ore played out by the mid-1700s. But by that time, they had cut down most of the forests around there to burn them to smelt the iron ore. So with the forest cut down, what came back was a second growth. Not a climax forest, but a second growth, and you've got low, scrubby woods with a lot of thickets. It's very thick forest. Now today, our forests tend to go into thickets anyway for various reasons. Uh, one thing is we don't graze cattle and hogs in their woods like they tend to, in the woods, like they tended to graze cattle and hogs in the woods, which kept the understory of the woods grazed out. But there, especially because the woods have been cleared out, the soil apparently wasn't that great. And what you've got is an area of maybe, like I say, 30, maybe 40 square miles of thickets, mostly, very thick, very dense. Artillery is useless in that terrain. Advantages in numbers are almost useless. Now, Lee really wants to fight there if he can, and they do fight a battle there. Now, it's not the greatest place for Grant to fight, but Grant is eager to fight Lee any place he can get to him. And so they fight a battle there on the 6th and 7th, well, they say 5th to 7th, yeah, 5th to 7th of May, 1864. It's uh, the first battle between Lee and Grant. It is very intense at times, uh, very unpleasant. It's, a lot of it's fought at close range, because visibility is short within those trees. There's a lot of confusion, again, because of the thickets and the terrain. So Grant is not able to make that sort of that free dash to Spotsylvania. He fights Lee first. But even at that, Grant almost wins it all right here in the wilderness. And because Grant had, you know, he, he thought if he could get a shot at Lee, if he could bring Lee into battle, he might be able to beat him, and he almost did. And uh, there's a famous episode on the second day of the battle, and one of the few large clearings there amongst the wilderness. Um, Grant's, uh, Grant had launched a big attack, and it broke through. And it had broken through Lee's lines, and were about to get to Lee's uh, supply wagons. And it was pretty much going to tear Lee's army in half, take out his supply wagons, and be the end. And how close this was to the absolute and utter doom and end of the Army of Northern Virginia can be seen in the reaction of Robert E. Lee. And if anybody knows if the Army of Northern Virginia is in big trouble, Lee would be the man, and he was, and he knew that it was. And what Lee does is to react in utter desperation as uh, the only reinforcements he can find start coming, what happens to be the Texas Brigade, uh, arrives Lee actually places himself in front of this brigade and starts to lead them in an infantry attack. Lee's going to lead on horseback an infantry Haven't we seen a high-ranking Confederate general do that before? Yes, we have. And uh, that was the end of Albert Sidney Johnston. And now Lee's going to do that. And I think what that tells me is that Lee recognized that this is it. This, he's practically doomed at this point. And so this is an act of utter desperation. What happens is the Texans, the soldiers of the Texas Brigade, force Lee to turn back. They, they're, they're shouting, Lee to the rear, Lee to the rear, and it's the first of a couple of Lee to the rear incidents that occur during this campaign. They actually take, grab the reins of Lee's horse and turn Traveler, his famous horse, and they turn Traveler's head and make uh, Lee go to the rear, and they, they wouldn't go forward until he turned back to the rear. He reluctantly did, and uh, 
the uh, counterattack by the Texas Brigade and other troops of uh, Fields Division were able to plug that hole and hold the line, and the day was saved for the Army of Northern Virginia. But it almost wasn't. It's very close. After two really hard days of fighting there at the wilderness and a, a day of really uh, standoff, Grant was able to go around the flank of Lee's army. He just was able to move off in that direction. I've got some pictures here I want to show you. These are uh, actually done by artists who went along with the Army of the Potomac and were sketching. So these are the closest thing we would get to an action picture. Here they are crossing the, Rapahan, uh, the Rapidan River. And here's actually a scene that a sketch artist made from position behind the Union line of battle as they were engaged with the Confederates, whom you can almost not see over there. They're very hard to see. And there, again, another uh, shot of a Union line of battle engaged. And this is, again, a guy sketching it with a pad and paper uh, from position behind the lines. And this is a sketch of, uh, made, again, by an artist who's on the scene. Uh, the reaction... When Grant, with his staff, and Meade, with his staff, as they're riding along the road leading to the south, um, they pass by the positions of some of the troops of the Army of the Potomac. And this is the first that the troops of the Army of the Potomac realize, we won a battle against Lee. We advanced into Virginia, we fought a battle, and we're advancing. It's the first time that's happened. That has not happened before. Not under McClellan, Pope, Burnside, Hooker. Every time the Army of the Potomac advances in Virginia, and they fight a battle, and they go back, and they retreat. This time, they fought a battle against the Army of Northern Virginia, and they're advancing. It was a hard battle. Casualties were high. Uh, it was a uh, very, very unpleasant experience. But we won this battle. We're advancing. Now, how do you decide who wins the battle? The soldiers, by the way, they're cheering here. I don't know if you can see, but they're waving their hats and cheering. There was quite a cheer. Uh, Grant was eager to get them to be quiet because we don't want Lee to know where we're moving anyplace. How do you know who won a battle? Is, it, is the side that won the, the side that suffers fewer casualties? You know, we haven't gotten to World War II yet, but if the side that takes the fewest casualties is the winner, then Erwin Rommel won D-Day. Right? And the United States lost and Apparently, Bradley was thrown back into the sea, and we'd all be speaking German today. Well, no, not exactly. But, no, that is not how you figure out who won a battle. It's who gets uh, more of what he wants of the situation that he wants afterwards. And the person who gets what he wants after the battle is Grant. He's, he's collided with Lee, and then he has just slid off. You want to use a sporting analogy, just like a running back who uh, hits a linebacker and bounces off and goes around him and just tearing down the field, and that's exactly what happened. So Grant has hit Lee here, and he moves down here. Again, if Grant can get to Spotsylvania before Lee does, Lee is virtually checkmated, and he almost does. It is very close, perhaps a matter of less than an hour of uh, the Confederate troops getting into position. And the circumstances that led to that were complicated, um, the woods were on fire, one of the things that made that battle of the wilderness so unpleasant. The woods caught fire. But because the woods were on fire, the Confederates did not stop for rests along that march. They just kept marching, which worked out for them. Well, it was very tiring, but they marched through the night in, in very dense, smoky woods. Very unpleasant circumstances, but they got there with maybe 30 minutes to spare. Um, also... There was a controversy about the Union cavalry, the cavalry of the Army of the Potomac. The commander of the cavalry of the Army of the Potomac was one of the few officers that Grant brought with him from the Western Theater to command something in the East. This is General Philip Sheridan. Sheridan has not commanded cavalry in the Western Theater. He's commanded an infantry division. But there was a saying in the Civil War, whoever saw a dead cavalryman, and uh, that, you know, there was a belief that cavalry don't really fight. So Grant wanted Sheridan, you know, I want you to come in. I want you to make the cavalry fight like infantry. And Sheridan, he doesn't invent this idea. He just advances this idea. We're going to use cavalry like, like mounted infantry, like, you know, uh, 
a sort of a mobile, in, in a modern battlefield, a motorized infantry unit. But maybe, because Sheridan wasn't familiar with cavalry operations, maybe he didn't do a good job of getting his cavalry out in front where they were supposed to be and getting them to Spotsylvania first when they needed to be there. It's controversial because some people defend Sheridan and some people agree with uh, Meade that nah, Sheridan did a bad job. In fact, there was a huge row between Sheridan, the cavalry commander of the Army of the Potomac, and George Meade, the overall commander of the Army of the Potomac under Grant. Both men were known to have terrible tempers, and their tempers were in true form on this day, and they had a, just a shouting match. Uh, probably, it didn't get recorded word for word, which is probably just as well, uh, but it was, it was pretty pointed. And Meade was furious, and he went over to Grant, and he says, Grant, you know, Sheridan says, if I just turn him loose, he could go and whip the Confederate cavalry under Jeb Stuart. And Grant says, did Sheridan say that? And Meade says, yes, he did. And Grant says, well, Sheridan usually knows what he's talking about. Go ahead and let him. So he turned Sheridan loose. And Sheridan led a raid. There's Jeb Stuart, the Confederate cavalry man, commander. We've met him before. He's a legend by now. And so while Grant and Lee face off at Spotsylvania, their respective cavalry corps go galloping off across the country and actually collide all the way down here just outside of Richmond at Yellow Tavern. The fight was inconclusive. Sheridan got back to Union lines, joined Butler, and then eventually rejoined Grant. But uh, significance of Yellow Tavern was Jeb Stewart was mortally wounded, died the next day. Uh, turned out the Confederates had a decent bench in the area of uh, cavalry leader, and they, got, they had another good leader after that. But at least Sheridan, or at least uh, Stewart was out of the fight. Back, though, to this situation. So Grant almost, Grant's forces almost got to Spotsylvania before Lee, but not quite. Lee takes it. There's a standoff for several days. Grant sees an opportunity to launch a major assault. By this time, yeah, by this time, here's another sketch by someone who's there. I don't know if you can tell what's going on, but there's a trench all the way along here. They're starting to dig trenches. They're starting to build log breastworks. They're starting to build a lot more uh, in the way of fort field fortifications and entrenchments. Troops have tended to do that in this war consistently after they've had a heavy fight. What's happening in this campaign is they have a heavy fight and then they stay in contact and keep fighting. At Spotsylvania, both sides built strong log entrenchments, uh, log breastworks and entrenchments. And you can go to Spotsylvania today, to the battlefield. And the trenches have slumped in a lot and there's grass growing over them. But you can still distinctly follow the lines. You can walk the lines because of these uh, the ditches that they had. Sometimes it's a trench, sometimes it's the ditch in front of the log breastworks. Well, Grant uh, saw a vulnerability in the Confederate line and launched a major assault, and it almost succeeded. And this led to the second lead to the rear incident, just as we saw at the Battle of the Wilderness. So at Spotsylvania, Lee apparently is desperate enough to try to lead an infantry counterattack to plug this gap in his line. Several thousand of his troops had been captured. A division commander had been captured. Confederate division commander had been captured. Uh, many Confederate guns and battle flags had been captured. And Lee, in desperation, is about to lead an infantry assault when the men forced him to go to the rear. Not the Texas Brigade this time, but another unit forced Lee to go to the rear. In the end, the Confederates were just barely able Actually, after 24 hours of close-range fighting by various units, the Confederates were able to hold their line there and uh, avoid disaster. But if you're keeping score at home, I think this is maybe the third time at least that it came very close to being a, an early Grant victory that would pretty much fulfill those unrealistic expectations. But... But didn't happen. 
after the unsuccessful attack, the almost but not quite successful attack at Spotsylvania, Grant again goes around Lee's flank. Again, hits him and slides off. Now, again, result of the battle. We don't do it by counting bodies on the battlefield. You know, famously, the United States in the early years of the Vietnam War uh, tried to gauge how well it was doing. The U.S. forces tried to gauge how much they were doing by counting bodies. They had body counts. Not the way to do it. And we're not going to do body counts here. Um, casualties were about proportional to the size of the troop, the forces engaged. And Grant goes down here. He's shooting for Hanover Junction, where the Virginia Central Railroad crosses over the Richmond and Fredericksburg. Grant is already, he started with the Virginia Central Railroad as his supply line. He's picked up the Richmond and Fredericksburg. Lee blocks him at Hanover Junction. Lee takes a very good position. Lee is a very good general. And I don't know if you can see that little upside-down red V right there. That's the position that Lee takes. In order to get at that position, Grant's troops will have to cross on either side, cross the North Anna River on either side of the apex of Lee's V. And by doing that, they'll be much separated from each other. So Lee has essentially put a wedge into the Union Army. It's got a lot of potential, but Lee can't follow up on it because Lee's army is getting worn out. Lee is getting worn out. He's suffering from heart disease, and uh, he may have had a heart attack in late 63. He's not in the greatest of health. By this time, he's on his back in a cot, in a tent, and he's trying to command the army from there. His top subordinates have been winnowed out, too. His, his best subordinate, his first corps commander, James Longstreet, badly wounded in a friendly fire incident at Wilderness. His uh, second corps commander, Ewell, becomes basically a psychological casualty after Spotsylvania. By the time they get to North Anna, his third corps commander, um, Ambrose P. Hill, um, has succumbed to bad health. Stress, I think, probably uh, added to it. So all of Lee's three, the three corps of Lee's army are being commanded by division commanders who have moved up to that position within the last few weeks. They don't have a lot of experience. Lee can't go out and provide that experience for them personally by riding around on horseback, as he did say in the Seven Days Battles. He's on his back. He can't make anything happen out of this. Grant pulls back. And, oh, yeah, here's a shot of the North Anna River and a Union pontoon bridge across it. That's actually a photograph taken at the time. Uh, so anyway, that's a more zoomed-in picture. There's the Confederate V on the North Anna. Again, Grant slides around them. As Lee lay in his tent on his cot, he said, we cannot let those people go around us again, or we can't let those people pass us again. But they did. He can't stop them. Grant is going around him again and again. I don't know, we just say like a, a running back that... I used to love the way Walter Payton, you know, he's old Hall of Famer. He'd, he'd get back there, he'd hit a defensive back, he'd slide off him and go on. He hits another defensive back, slide off him and go on. Grant is, Grant is having things his way. Uh, the wilderness was 65 miles from Richmond. Spotsylvania, about 55 miles. The North Anna was 25 miles from Richmond. And when Grant gets down here, where the line, they're going to face up against each other again, in a, a place called Cold Harbor, not because it was cold or a harbor, but because there was an inn where you could only get cold meals. Um, they're going to be 10 miles from Richmond. So Grant is making progress here as they, again, advance uh, in a sidelong way that way. They get down here, Cold Harbor, quickly, because we don't have much time, uh, is best known for an unsuccessful attack on May 3rd. The attack did not result in 7,000 Union casualties in 45 minutes, more like uh, maybe 1,500. Uh, Grant, again, struggles with getting Meade and Meade's subordinates to attack in the ways he wants, when he wants, in a coordinated manner. And then another thing that Grant tries to communicate in his orders, and you read this again and again, is... And if you see that the Confederates have a strong position, and if you see we're not going to break through right away, stop the attack. Do not keep doubling down on a failed attack. Unfortunately, the, the generals of the Army of the Potomac tend to double down on failed attacks. They're not as fast in getting their attacks going as Grant wants. 
But when they do get going, they don't want to stop, even though they're failing. So that ran casualty lists up. But the two armies remained in contact at Cold Harbor beyond June 3rd, when the unfortunate attack happened, uh, all the way up to the 12th. And in some of the movements and attacks that happened afterwards, Grant actually did better than Lee. And then the final move of this overland campaign is maybe the most brilliant of the side moves that Grant makes. He really fakes Lee out, and he takes his army down and across the James River, and he moves on Petersburg. And... uh, that was another one of those moves that should have, uh, by rights, have given Grant what he was seeking. Unfortunately, fatigue, bad decisions by generals, um, various factors led, and, and I have to say a heroic Confederate defense of Petersburg, which is just off the map there, uh, led to that, uh, the failure to take Petersburg. But at that point, it becomes really a quasi-siege of Confederate positions around Richmond, and Petersburg, with Grant on the outside of that line, constantly drawing, driving to cut additional railroads. And as Robert E. Lee had said, on a boat, actually when the armies were up here, Lee said, we've got to stop Grant before he gets to the James River. There's the James River. Grant said, if he gets to the James River, it's going to be a siege, and then it will only be a matter of time. And from the time Grant got to the James River... In mid-June of 1864, it was a matter of time for the Confederacy, although a lot more time than Union voters would have wished. Okay, we are out of time, so thank you for your attention, and I'll see you all on Wednesday. Thanks for listening to C-SPAN's Lectures in History podcast. If you're interested in hearing more history, check out our latest podcast, First Ladies, In Their Own Words. Using material from C-SPAN's award-winning biography series, First Ladies, and source material from C-SPAN's video library, you'll listen to first spouses addressing issues important to them and the country. The program includes eight first ladies, from Lady Bird Johnson to Melania Trump. Find First Ladies, in their own words, wherever you get your podcasts.